I want to grow in my own ability to teach and speak and preach. Um, I would love to be as clear as he is when he speaks to the gospel and when he speaks to just very big points. And Greg just has a great way of bringing them down into the most important point. That's why typically on a baptism Sunday, because it's such an important day to be able to share the gospel and everything like that, we usually give that to Greg because he does such a fine job of it and all. And so sometimes I'll take a preaching workshop. There's some that come through the area and all, or I'll take an online class, or I'll read a book or an article. Recently, re- recently I watched a whole bunch of TED Talks on how to tell a story just for that particular skill set. Today, our text tells a story. It's a very, it's a very unique um, uh, text in the context of Scripture. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 27. And this, this tells a story today that is... It, it just in, incorporates all of the emotions that you want in your very best story. It incorporates um, just tragedy and sorrow and um, intrigue and deception. It is, it, as I've often said, this family is the very first, you know, Dallas or Falcon's Crest or 9021, whatever it is. You know, this family was one hot mess. And, and what's really interesting, too, is that when people talk about and criticize Scripture, what's really interesting is that Scripture does not try to gloss over its heroes. It would be so easy to just only read about all the strengths of these people. But instead, that doesn't happen, um, especially with these particular characters, with Isaac and Jacob and Esau um, there is so much more to not like about them than there is to like about them. And yet, here they are in Scripture as um, people were learning from and God has used. So let's read in chapter 27. We're going to read a long passage today because that's just the nature of the story, okay? I'm reading from the New American Standard, and um, as I often say, I'll meet you at the end in verse 33 if you're reading from a different version, all right? Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And Isaac said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for me and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Let's pause right there, and let's consider what we just learned and what we were just given in the context of the story. You know, it's setting the stage for us. Isaac is old, very old, old enough that his eyes are gone bad. He cannot see who's in front of him any longer. As the story goes on, we'll read that even for him to identify his son later on, he smelled him, he felt him. So his eyes were no longer a source of any kind of information. He was relying on his other senses. And then also, um, you, um, we see here also that what does he do? He says, please go and make a meal for me. And when you bring it back in, I'm going to bless you. Well, we know from the previous chapters that this blessing that he's about to give was not intended for Esau. It was intended for Jacob. God had told Rebekah that before either of the boys were ever born that the blessing was intended for Jacob, the younger one. And so just like as uh, in in this passage, we'll see 
you know, perhaps, you know, the top five list of dysfunctions a family can have, they portray for us right here without hiding it. And immediately what we're seeing here is where one parent is favoring another parent over, uh, favoring another child over the other children. And not only that, we also see here where Isaac has decided that he wants something against what God had ordained. God had ordained Jacob as being the child of the blessing. And here we have Isaac saying, I will bless my older son instead. All right? Verse 5. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring, to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Give me some game and prepare a savory dish for me, that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring two choice kids from there, and I will prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. And then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat and so that he may bless you before his death. So now you hear, here's the other, you know, part of the dysfunction. Here's the mother with her favored child. And, you, and some could say, well, you know what? She's just trying to protect God's agenda. She's just trying to do what God wants. Well, I can just say that that, you could look at it that way, that she knew that God wanted Jacob to be the one blessed, so she's trying to make sure that God's purposes get done, but God's purposes are never done through trickery and deception. And so while perhaps, and I think it's a stretch personally, perhaps you could say her motive was right and her methodology was wrong, I think both of them were wrong. I think that she was very interested in her favorite child getting that blessing, and she was interested in getting it in any way she could. So here she is. She is going to deceive her husband against her son so that this son gets the favor. And Jacob, verse 11, Jacob answered his mother, And behold, Esau is my brother, and he's a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, then, then I, will, shall be, I will be as a deceiver in his sight. And I shall bring upon a curse, myself a curse and not a blessing. It's, it's interesting to me that he's worried about that. Because that's what his name means, is deceiver. And he's worried that he's going to be seen as that by his father. And yet, his life story is one of a deceiver. And he has already proven that way to his brother. Perhaps my father, verse 13, And his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son, and obey my voice. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. In other words, she just said, The consequences will be on me. You go do what I said. Well, that's a great statement to say. But later on in the story, you're going to see, when everything was said and done, Esau didn't say, I'm going to kill my mother for this. He said, I will kill my brother for this. So she might have made a big promise here, like, oh, the consequences would be on me. But that's not what happened at all. The consequences squarely fell on the brother. And not only that, but at the end of the story, you're going to see that to protect Jacob from her brother, here the mom is again intervening. At the end of the story, she sends Jacob away to her family 
to protect him from Esau. That was the last time she ever saw him. The consequence fell on her. While she didn't plan it that way, it happened that way. Verse 14, so he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were, in, were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kid on the hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she also gave the savory food and the bread which she had made to her son Jacob. And then he came to his father and said, My father... And he said, here I am. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Now, do, you, do you think that right there immediately he hears a voice and he's like going, who, who is this I'm speaking to? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Get up and please sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. And Esau said to his son, how is it that you have it so quickly, my son? Because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me, he said. So Jacob has already demonstrated, Esau, Isaac has already demonstrated two times to be suspicious of what's happening here. So two times already now, Jacob has lied to his father. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. There's the third time of suspicion. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, bring it to me and I will eat my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate. And he also brought him wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. Here was the final test. So he came close and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of the garments. There it was, that last test. This is really him. And it says, And he blessed him. See the smell of my son, verse 27 here, is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven under the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you. May nations bow down to you. Be masters of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. And now it came about as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. So there you have it, you know, Jacob deceives the father, takes the blessing. He goes out the, black door, the back door, and Esau comes in the front door. Verse 31, Then he had made his savory food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of my son's game, that you may bless me. And Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled violently. And he said, who was that then who hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Wow. Let's just stop there for a second. Um, there you have it. One parent choosing a son over another son, another parent choosing the other son. Parents with conflicting agendas, conflicting desires for their children, 
dreams for their children, children with conflicting desires and dreams with one another, yielding to the parent of their choice, the parent favored to them, and playing out this entire sordid drama. Now, the next passage here, beginning verse 33 and on, um, I'm not going to read it from the New American Standard. I'm going to read it from the message because I want it to be a little bit more less thee and thou and a little bit more I want it to get you in the gut. I want you to try and understand and and relate to the sorrow of this man as he walks in and finds out that he has been deceived and that his mother has been a part of this deception. All right? So in verse 35, uh, let me start in verse 34. Esau, hearing his father's words, sobbed violently and most bitterly. And he cried, My father, can't you also bless me? Your brother came here falsely and took your blessing. And Esau said, Not for nothing has his name been called Jacob the heel. Twice now he's tricked me. First he took my birthright. Now he has taken your blessing. Haven't you kept anything for me, father? Anything? And Isaac answered him and said, I made him your master. And all his brothers, his servants, lavished grain and wine on them. I've given it all away. What's left for you, my son? Don't, he, said, and he said, but don't you have one blessing left for me, Father? Just one blessing, Father, that you could give me. Bless me too, Father. And Esau sobbed inconsolably. That sobbing. That Hebrew word there is a word that talks about it, it's dripping, it's overflowing. It is, it is this continual weeping that cannot be stopped. Bob Deffenbaugh, in his comments on this passage, he says, How puzzled Esau must have been at the terrified look in his father's eyes at the way he trembled violently upon his bed. What could possibly have gone wrong? His father said, go hunt and come back. Make me a meal. I'm going to bless you. What happened in that time frame between leaving the house and walking back in? What was his father's reaction? Why was it like this? Why was it so violent? A sense of dread must have slowly fallen over Esau as it became more and more clear that his brother had once again gotten the best of him. The irony of it was that since Isaac had tried to give everything to Esau, there was nothing, since Isaac had given everything to, had tried to give everything to Esau, there was nothing left that could be considered a blessing for his favorite son. For all of it had been given to Jacob. I think many of us, myself included, at some point or another, had probably been found in that place where Esau was in this passage here. That place of like having something that we wanted desperately and to find it to continually be outside of our reach. You've probably looked for it in lots of places. That job that you thought was going to be the job that pregnancy you thought was going to be the next child, 
that adoption phone call that you thought was going to be your child. That person that you thought was going to be the spouse, your partner, whatever it may have been. At some time or another, some of us have, have felt that moment of desperation of when everything inside of us welled up with more emotion than we could describe, with more emotion than we could articulate, and it overwhelmed us completely and totally. Can you find that moment in your life? For some of us, when we find that moment, when we've been that place, we have that reaction like Esau. That overwhelming, inconsolable moment of pain and sorrow that will always be a landmark in our lives. We will always remember that moment. Others of us don't ever let it come out like that. Instead, it is kept inside, tucked away in a box in the back corner of our heart. But it is always there. It is always at work. It is like the lava beneath the surface of a volcano. It is ever-present. It is always red-hot. And at any moment, it could come to the surface. This has been a recurring theme lately in many of my talks with other Christians, and even as I've been walking with the Lord myself, that when we peel back the layers of this thing that we want to talk about, this thing that we're kind of working through in our life, if you peel, if, you know, if you peel that back and you say, here, here, I have this onion that's bothering me, and you begin to talk to people, and I begin to even look at my own life, and I begin to peel back that onion, I find that really it's not this that we're really talking about. It's something far deeper at the center of that that is really driving the conversation. Can you track with me on that? Can you relate to that? It's kind of like saying, I can't sleep at night. Well, why not? And it's because there's something on your mind that you can't get off your mind. There's something on your heart you can't get off your heart. It's kind of like people come and they want to talk about this, but really this other thing is really the issue. And so often this other thing is this core issue. It's this unmet need. It is this un fulfilled desire. It is this something that is in us that drives us, that compels us. It is this something that stays on our mind day in and day out. Maybe not all day, but I bet it's something that we think about every day. It's something that influences the decisions we make, the choices we make, the way we present ourselves to others. I would go so far to say it is even something that determines the way we dress. It determines where we live. It determines the job we have. It determines who we're with. It determines the school we go to, the grades we care about, the church we go to, all kinds of things. Just so many daily decisions that are made, not because we think that's why we're making them, but because there's something else, this unresolved thing that's deep inside that drives us to make these kind of choices. 
Many of us grew up in families like Esau's, where there was a great deal of dysfunction. And that dysfunction left holes in your heart. Places where you feel like you never were touched emotionally, that you have longed to have filled for all of your life. Questions about why things were the way they were, why things are the way they are, that you feel like you can't get answers to. These things that consume our thinking, these things that motivate us like this, these things that are passionate about us, and not in the way that passionate about it drives us to do well, but in the way that passion drives us, that we have to find out it pushes us. All those things, they're, they're demonstrated in the way that we use our time, and they're demonstrated in the way that we use our money. They're demonstrated in what we talk about. They're demonstrated in what we surf the web about. They're demonstrated kind of like, you know, in, um, in the things you post on your Facebook page and the type of, of boards you have on your Pinterest account and the things you put up on your Instagram account. All of that stuff so often reveals things that are really very deep in our heart. And really, most importantly, and more telling, are the things that we post on the wall of our heart. The things that never get public at all. What is that thing that keeps coming up in your life? What is that thing that you think is going to complete you and make you a happy person? What is that thing that you keep saying, if I had this, I would be that? If I, if I just had this, I would be fine. If I just had this, if my kids just made good choices, I'd be fine. If I just had my health, I'd be fine. If my husband would just come to church, I'd be fine. If my husband had never left, I'd be fine. If I, I would, you fill in the blanks. If I could just get through school, I'd be fine. The problem is, is whatever you put in that blank, you won't be fine. You'll be left lacking still. One quote I read was that it said that anything... I'm not, I didn't write it down. I'm working from memory here, so I'm probably going to botch this. Basically, it said that any desire that you long for that eventually you get was never the thing you really wanted. It was never really the thing that was going to satisfy you and fulfill you. If you can grab it, that's not it. Because you see, anything that you can apply to that hole in your heart, anything that you, can, that you can apply to that desire that you long for, it's not going to work. There's a passage that I was reading this weekend in, in um, Genesis um, 46, 44. And, and he, and, and, no, I'm sorry, in, in, in Jeremiah 2. And he writes there and he says, he's talking to his people and he says, look what you've done, look what you've done. You've decided that you can do this better than me. And so, for instance, here I am. I am the fountain of living water. And what do you do? You go and dig a cistern. 
and you wait for it to rain, and then muddy water comes down the side of the hill, and you catch it in this rock-hewn hole in the ground, and then you drink from that, but that leaks, and it all goes away. And that's what you do for yourself. When I could give you living water that would never, never run out, that would totally satisfy you, you would never thirst again. When I can give you that, you still say, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. I'd rather have muddy water that I never know when it's going to get here and I never know when it's going to run out and I'd much rather have that instead. And that's what it's like when you have that thing in your heart, when you have that hole in your life, when you have that thing that you keep looking for and you try and fix it yourself, you've just dug a broken cistern that won't really ever fix your problem. And yet, is that not human nature? Throughout Scripture, God has condemned the way that people have tried to to do that kind of stuff. I mean, you think about it. Um, As soon as as the the children of Israel come out of Egypt, they come to a place and they're waiting on on Moses who's gone up to meet with God and they're waiting on him and, and Moses doesn't come back soon enough for them. And Moses is not coming back with the answers they want. So what do they do? They're going to put together a gold calf and say, this is us. This is ours. And, and again, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, he says the same thing. He says there, what have you done? Look at this. What do you do? You take, you take a tree and you say, you made me. And you take a rock and you say, you saved me. And he says, what is that? Why would you turn away from me, the one who's promised to save you, the one who's promised to meet your needs, the one who's promised to take care of you? As a matter of fact, in chapter in Psalm 44, he says, look at everything that has happened. Look at all the ways I've provided. And he goes through a long laundry list of all these things he's done. And the people still forgot about that and went and tried to do it themselves. Esau was looking for something that he thought was his and something that he thought would fulfill him. And when he didn't get it, it crushed him because he was looking to be fulfilled from something other than God himself. He had come to the realization that he had a need that was never going to be met. And as the passage says, he wept inconsolably. So often, we as Christians are struggling with some area of our life that if you scratch the surface and you go deep enough, you'll find out that it's a core issue that's lying down there dormant. Really, it's not dormant at all. It's lying down there waiting for an opportunity to come out, looking for an opportunity to be met to be fulfilled. It's something that demands our attention, whether we know it or not. And when left to itself, it continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger because it's unmet. It's a hunger that is not being fed. And in Psalm 46, another part of that passage that really was meaningful to me I mean, sorry, Psalm 44. I was reading 44 and I was flipping around and I happened to look over at Psalm 46. And in Psalm 46, he begins this way. God is our refuge and strength, a very present 
help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. But really what caught my attention was the ending of that passage. Because he says in 46.10, the closing, closing verses of that passage, he just says, stop striving and know that I am God. In other words, stop trying to fix that thing yourself. Stop trying to be something that you're not. Stop looking for answers someplace where you won't find them. Be still. Be still. And let me do this for you. The passage says, Cease striving and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Really what's happening, people, when we begin to discount God's ability to meet that need in our heart, when we begin to discount that he's not able to fix that ache in our heart, when he's not able to fix that broken heart, when we try and do that ourselves, we're saying that God is not God enough, and I'll find something else to do that for me. And he says, stop that. Cease that. And know that I am God. That's not another God. It's not a golden calf. It's not a stone. It's not a tree. It's not another book written by the the newest guru. It's not even another book written by, you know, any of the Christian gurus. It's none of those things. It's me. It's just me. Stop. Stop. And let me do this. Know that I am your refuge and I am your help and I am with you. Believe that. And then sit down and watch me do this for you. Now then, if I were to stop right there, a dozen of you would line up right here and say, how do you do that? And I would say, You stop, and you sit, and you wait. And by faith, believe that he's at work. And by faith, believe that even though you don't see it, even though you don't touch, you can't touch it or feel it, he's doing something. And just simply by expressing that by faith, you're going to find that there is a freedom that you've never experienced before from this issue in your life. Stop. Stop. And let him be God. And in letting him be God, that's when he says, I will be exalted because you're going to come out of this like going, oh my gosh, i got to tell you what God did in my life. But if you sit there and you keep trying to do it yourself, that's why we have, let's just be honest, that's why we have so many Christians who sit in these chairs and pews around the world and say, yeah, I really love Jesus and I like my church. But if you were to get them to finish that statement and say, but it just hasn't worked for me. I still have all this stuff. That's why we have so many Christians, people who would say, yeah, I went to church for years. And you know what? It just, it wasn't really the thing for me. 
It's because they came to church thinking, I've got this thing, and I think you're going to fix it, and this is the way I want you to fix it. Just sign on the dotted line, and I'll take care of it. And God says, that's not the way I work. Take a seat, wait, and you'll see how I'm going to fix this. And people don't want to wait. They want to build their golden calves and have it their way. McDonald's, baby, or whoever said that. Have it your way. That's the way we are. We want it our way on our timeline. And God says, that's not the way I work. And people will say, you know what then? God's not really God because he didn't do it my way. And they walk out of the church and they go out on the street and someone interviews them and says, so what do you think about the church? He says, eh, a lot of hollow promises. They don't really do what they say. And it's because they wanted God to conform to them and he will not do it. So if you're sitting here today disillusioned with God, it's probably because you want him to do something your way, and he's not going to do it. Stop. Be still. Wait on him. And you will one day say, my God is an amazing God. Let's pray. Father, this morning um, I preach another sermon that I am preaching to myself. And so help us today to have the faith to stop, to be still, to wait on you so that one day we will praise you because we let you be you and we didn't try and get in your way. In your name we pray, amen.